HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. from the farm and drove into a big cloud bank, but it's cool. We just got our first frost last week. Oh, you just had your first frost. Yeah, we had yeah. 18 degrees last night. My cat slept on my head. He was like, yikes, this is not good. I don't like winter. <laughs> did you, I, you're, you sound far off, but did you say snow last night? It's, it was 18 degrees and my cat left on my head. <laughs> well, that's one way to do it. Yeah. How's your cat doing? Say that again? How is your cat doing? Oh, I'm sorry to report uh, we lost Ram last year. So we're catless. Catless? And are you also rabbitless? Yeah, our our animals have really uh, the numbers have gone down on the farm, both intentionally and unintentionally. But uh, no cats, no rabbits now. Yikers! All right, well let's do a little uh, mini introduction. Wealth Underground CSA. Give us the um, give us the short version of the of your of your statistical presence on the land. Sure. So Wealth Underground Farm is a small diversified operation that I run with my friend Chris Siegel and it's been 
running for about five years now. Um, actually, it's five years, four of which have been, um, we've used the CSA model. And so we, we have about an acre in cultivation, and there's about another acre of orchards, blueberries, pasture, um, and, yeah, and we lease the land. So that's a, that's, that's a little synopsis. That was a good little spiel. And you have cute little greenhouses and cute little farm hacks and very sweet little um, 70s kind of hippie house that was uh, <laughs> land owned by the city or it's a watershed area, or explain why you're able to access that land for farming and what um, potential learning lessons are for other people who are interested in peri-urban land access uh, might learn yeah. from your experience. You know, I didn't quite catch the last part of that, but I'll, I'll start. It's, it's basically... Um, it's a unique situation. It's it's owned by Metro, which is an organization that buys up um, p- properties around the city, around Portland, um, to protect them. And we're, our land uh, is situated across the street from Forest Park, which is a large um, urban forest park. And um, they bought the land um, as a biological corridor for the park um, and hopes one day potentially to extend trails that are in the park up. So the whole land itself is 58 acres. Um, and and when they bought the land, um, they zoned. Uh, it's mostly wooded, I should say, um, with only a few open pastures. Um, one of which, when they acquired it, they zoned it agriculturally, um, thinking that potentially it would be a space that um, small farmers could use. And uh, and this that sort of decision was made, as far as I understand it, single-handedly by a woman the land manager at Metro, whose name is Lori Wolf, and she's sort of a hero in that, in, in that regard, you know, um, sort of visioning that on uh, uh, making sort of the institutional changes that needed to happen for that to happen. And then I was just in the right position. Um, she, I was working on another farm, and she was friends with that farm, and um, so the word got out that there was this land up for lease, a fallow field that had the potential to be uh, a small farm. And uh, and I was signing the papers the next day as soon as I heard about it because I was at a point in my life where I was re- I was ready I was looking for land. Um, and then my farming partner Chris Siegel we're, we went to college together and and it's been an aspiration of ours ever since we've known each other to have um, sort of a homestead or, or or land project together and so that was a key puzzle piece um, and then he moved in several months later and we broke ground. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the world's largest distributor of heritage breed pork and turkeys. For the past 11 years, Heritage Foods USA has had the great honor of announcing the arrival of a new generation of Frank Reese's heritage turkeys for Thanksgiving, and it's that time of year again. These turkeys are allowed to roost, fly, flirt, and roam the Kansas prairie. Celebrate Thanksgiving with the only 100% true heritage turkey in America. To reserve yours today, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. And everybody has been um, very supportive of your project. I know that from being there and working working on some parties and mixers in the Portland urban food scene, which is yeah. like in, insanely, uh, insanely active. 
Um, but you also have been installing the infrastructure on your land to do more educational and art work, art teaching. Mm-hmm. Tell me what the next, what the iterations have been on that front. What was phase one and what was phase two and where are you going? Yeah, so when we when we started the farm, I think we were we wanted to make um, it fit our lifestyles, and our lifestyles are ones that we have multiple interests. Um, and so, just as like we're interested in having sort of the sense of diversity on our farm, um, biologically and in uh, among you know what crops we plant, we're also interested in sort of having diversity of activities happening. Um, at, on the space, on the land. Um, I'm an artist as well, and so it's been important for me to have um, time uh, to for my art practice. And so there's, lot, there's been sort of a... The farm has been... We've seen it as a hybrid for a long time, um, ever since we started. And, and we're also situated in this... You know, we're, we're 10 minutes from Portland, yet we're in a very rural um, place, so we're... Um, our situation affords us the ability to, um, for other people to access our farm pretty easily. Um, and so we've, we've built some educational programs up. We've taught, Chris and I have taught a class through Portland State University on the farm in the summer. Um, and then uh, I work with another artist, Molly Sherman, uh, on a collaboration called Farm School, and a lot of our work has to do with agriculture in food systems, and so Molly and I have, have taught several classes on the farm as well. And, you know, a question occurs, like, for me is people are engaging more in agricultural topics in urban areas and in kind of creative production of various forms. You know, there's art, there's activism. Those are categories that we put onto our expression of the sentiments and and character of our relationship with the land and our encounter with the land and our encounter with the economy and the pinch point of being between the economy and the land and the human condition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is this agrarianism? Like, what are we what are we grappling with? All of us who are kind of in the hyper connected world of very social cities like Portland, Oregon, um, and with our with a you know with a foot firmly in farming. Yeah. Are we? Um, what is what is what is this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a couple of things, and they're and they're real. Some of them are really just basic um, understanding what it means to feed ourselves, um, understanding. Uh, wanting to to both have a connection with with land, with open space ourselves, but also extend that to other people, um, and ha- because I think that experience is really important. Um, and then also the agricultural side of that, exposing people to a space where agri- agricultural production is happening, food is really being grown, um, and exposing them to the reality of that situation, be it even a garden or a one acre. Um, CSA, it's still really important, and I've seen it over and over again, people's uh, sort of the wheels turning and the connections being made when they come out to the farm. We do we do a, a lot of tours, and um, it's really rewarding watching those, those um, connections being made in people's minds and sort of those understandings and the exposure 
to those um, to the farm and to ag production is just uh, a really amazing thing. So I mean that's that's one part of it, um, both of of my motivation and I think why we're doing this sort of model. Well, Did that answer your question? Just, well, my question is unanswerable. My question is longer than my lifetime. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the challenge that Wendell Berry often puts us to is how do we fit ourselves to the land? And what is mm-hmm. the pattern of, of, of relations and of an economy that's both compatible with the landscape and what it means? And and how do mm-hmm. we as stewards accommodate um, the long-term interests of the place that we love? And so yeah. that, that seems to be um, kind of what I'm orbiting around in terms of how are these urban, urban communities that are really incubators for kind of agrarian sentiment, mm-hmm. how do those act, um, are those like, training grounds? Are those, uh, is this like a hatchery? Where where are people going passing, when they're passing through you, where do they go afterwards? Or where does their work take them? Right. I wish I knew. I think not, I mean, I know there's there's people that leave uh, an hour-long tour with us swearing that they're going to be farmers or at least that they're going to grow a garden next year and I think that's great but I think the other part of it is that they're just um, in their consciousness they they have that they hold this sort of um, experience that and reality of what it means to grow food and that influences their decisions um, throughout their life um, when when they interact with food when they're in the grocery store when they um, so it's you know there are there are soft and hard um, ramifications of people's experience, but I think they play out um, in interesting ways, um, and hopefully, um, all together, sort of bring us. I think we need all kinds of different models, um, farm sizes, you know, and various um, operations, and so I, you know, and I think. I don't know, Chris and I over and over again are always advocating for people just to start growing some food. And, you know, if we can if we can push them in that direction, then, I, then I'm really excited about that. Um, yeah, I was having a conversation last week with Ben Lanner, who's a rooftop farmer in Brooklyn, about his... He just continues to have amazing teams, an amazing team dynamic, and um, really... Um, great people who go and work there, uh, and he was talking about the wonderful feeling of being in a non, kind of, not in a family situation, and that it's really not an economic unit that, for which, like, none of the people who, who work, they work there, is it their, I think, full-time, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't think it's anybody's full-time job. Serving mm-hmm. as kind of an other life and some autonomy, yeah. And um, and you know that may be the kind of like Brooklyn version, but essentially that's the same uh, question around sovereignty and self determination and kind of domestic resilience that people yeah. have wanted to have um, 
throughout history and like a lot of the question of the commons and like what is the role of the commons uh i was reminded by an elder of mine the other day of you know how long is this you know we're talking about land access how long is the struggle for for access not to enough land necessarily to be like a market gardener, a commercial producer, have it be your sole business, but en- yeah. enough, enough, um, enough land to 295 North, enough land to be autonomous and to be able to squeak and squawk when, you know, your wages are too low and the price of corn is too high, and and that mm-hmm. the, your capacity to squawk and push back against whatever the desires of the marketplace, desires of industrial production are because you have this, um, you know, kind of sanctuary of self-sufficiency. And that's very much more in the, you know, the kind of European tradition of peasantry or the Via Campesina notion of food sovereignty, mm-hmm. um, you know, can be satisfied on very small acreages for, yeah. for households. Yeah. I think, and I think... I just, when people come and, and see our space and see what we're doing, there's this sense of possibility um, that they didn't that they didn't realize was there. Um, because Can we're just... Explain, we're, your explain your name. What does that mean, Wealth Underground? Yeah, so, I mean, it, as an organic farm, it means literally the, the wealth of the soil is supposed to, you know, feed the so- soil, not the plant sort of concept. Um, but it also means, and we get this question all the time, you know, how much are you making? You know, you can, is this supporting you? Dot, 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 I think. Our name is partially suggesting those unquantifiable, uh, the unquantifiable wealth that isn't monetary that goes along with the lifestyle of being an agrarian. You know, um, and and I could, you know, those as well as I do. But you know, working outdoors, eating organic food, you know, um, being independent, controlling your own schedule, um, working with the seasons and the cycles of nature. I mean, it's just the list goes on. But those are some, that's the wealth underground to me. It's those unquantifiable pieces, and really the reason that I farm. Um, I I don't know. I don't, I didn't go into farming to to make money, and so I went in. I went into to growing food for the wealth underground, and so that that that's that's how we arrived at our name. And but people when they come, are they grappling with that? Are they are they re- are they reacting and being like, yikes, I can't handle it. They're just doing this because they love it. It's lifestyle. What does this mean? And and, like, I mean, I also think that people react and they don't necessarily have enough time to kind of accommodate uh, a new notion in their busy lives. I think that's one of the things mm-hmm. I've noticed something about, like, when we do events that are short, people are, people uh, don't have as much time to open up. But when we do events that are two days long, we get, like, technology geeks to kind of blow their minds open and be like, wow, uh-huh. maybe I could work for free to do things that are good. <laughs> You know, which is close to what we need for them to do if we're going to, you know, hack up some Arduinoids. But um, tell me about people's reaction to that, these notions that you're that you're positing. Yeah, I think um, I, we do get that reaction of resistance at first, but then 
I think um, there's sort of a deep down people relate to it and and really want it and want to believe that that's possible, you know. And there's just not too many. There's not enough examples of people um, who are really living idealistically um, and and saying it's okay. Um, so I think people find comfort in that too, um, to see to see uh, an integrated life that does involve. I mean, I work outside the farm as well, and that's you know I'm just I'm just transparent about that too when I talk about things. What's your um, other job? Say again. What is your other job? Um, I'm I'm a freelance photographer, and I I shoot a lot, and I'm an artist, and I occasionally work on commission um, that that can pay me. Right on. So, so you're very open about you have another income that supports this work, and, and yeah. people people then can accommodate that in their understanding of what your what your creature is. Exactly. And are they then, like, immediately jealous? <laughs> <laughs> or... Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I just, I think people, I think people walk away just thinking that it's more realistic that they can grow a lot of their own food um, and that it doesn't have to be an overhaul of their life. Entirely, we just had a, a huge group of beginning urban farmers up to our our property for for like a three hour tour, and I think and all these people are you know they're all ages they're from twenty to sixty years old and they're all people interested in growing food, um, and they're no one's really sure and they're all living life you know and probably all have jobs um, and they're but they're searching for a way um, to have a farm and so. I think we, they a lot of people really responded to our situation because um, it shows that it's sort of a hybrid model where you can farm um, and continue your life as it is. I mean, not as it is, but you know, there's this hybrid. There's a hybridity to it that I I think people often think farming is all or nothing. That um, you have well, to you, you have to you dis- do, you don't disappear. You have more chickens to put in, so that means you have a lot less of that constraint. Or do you still have chickens? Yeah, we have some hens, but we've gotten smarter about um, how we keep them. And we do have to come home every night before sundown. It's true, but um, there's also more people living on the farm, and that helps as well. Well, so I've been, I feel like I've been driving a lot of this uh, questioning around, you know, what's, what's going on and where's it going. Sure. Maybe I should open up for you, you know, what what questions are you chewing on in terms of, like, you know, you've come through five years, you're looking at the, maybe you're not at an inflection point yet, but um, mm-hmm. soon the end of the first bone will be, and then there'll be some ligaments, and then there'll be another bone. Do you have a sense of where, either personally or for your community, what that next bone might be, or what's ahead? Um. It's it's hard to say it's hard to say what's what's ahead. Um, it's still we're still you know chewing it over. But um, I guess the thing that's coming up for me is that I'm that I want to get out there. It's that I'm I'm part of a photography show coming up next month at a 
it's that's around food. It's called Seafood, with a bunch of um, talented photographers, ten other photographers, I believe, um, and it's at the Houston Center for Photography, um, and it opens next, I think, on the 22nd. So if you're in Texas, that'd be something to check out. Um, I don't, I don't have, I don't have like a direct answer to your question. I don't, um, I'm because it's too big of a question. We take things year by year here, and we're still <laughs> we're still talking about next year. So, so, so if people want to go and find your photography, where would they do that? Well, I mean, if you can find me on the web, nolancalish.com, um, and and you can kind of see what I'm up to in various ways on there, um, but. That's that's really the that's an opening that I'm that I'm having next month. Um, so that's that's what's coming up in the near future for me. So for those of you who are wondering what else is in the future in uh, on the horizon, there are uh, there are a lot of um, action alerts going on right now about the Food Modernization Act, um, and. There is a farm hack event coming up um, in at UC Davis. It's totally sold out, um, so I shouldn't really promote it, but hopefully some useful outcomes will occur. And certainly um, if you are in the Northern California region and interested to engage with the topic of appropriate technology and sustainable agriculture, um, it would be worth checking in to the site before and after to see what is on the table in terms of farmer-generated tools and, and need for tools and skills, offered skills needed. Um, that's definitely in a scene of emergent uh, innovation. And other than that, you know, there's just, you know, there's just a lot of finishing up the year to do. So I hope everyone's having a good time doing that and staying, keeping themselves healthy and not getting too tired and <laughs> taking care of themselves and drinking ginger tea. And, um, yeah, anything you want to add, Nolan, of upcomingness or, you know, thoughts for the world? <laughs> um, no, I'm looking forward to when we can uh, have sit down together in person. Tell me yeah, next time you're in the Portland awesome. area. Yeah, I'm coming up there. Um, I'm gonna go and do some San Juan action and some Idaho action one of these one of these days. So I'll we'll swing through. I look forward to that very much. We we should talk about almanac steps. Yeah, it was nice talking to you. Um, really nice talking to you. Thank you, Nolan. Thank you all for listening and I will talk to you all next week on another episode of Greenhorns Radio. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 